the seeds that they planted of turning their back on tradition and history began to, over time, yield some pretty bad fruit. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this one's a bit personal. Until today, one topic we haven't really touched on in any meaningful way is the relationship between evangelicals and the Republican Party. If you've followed my work since 2020, or maybe you watched the Showtime documentary, you might know that I grew up in a devoutly evangelical community. My father was the pastor of our church. My mother raised us and worked in the church office. I was homeschooled through the elementary grades before I was sent to Christian school, where every morning we recited not one, but three pledges of allegiance with our hands over our hearts. The first was, of course, to the American flag. The second pledge was to the Christian flag, which I'll bet a lot of you didn't even know existed. And the third one was a pledge to the Bible, at which point we moved our hands from our hearts to our Bibles, just like when our politicians are sworn in. So when my friend Mike Madrid told me about a new book coming out about the evangelical movement, written by a political journalist who grew up in the evangelical community, I nearly lurched out of my seat. You see, it's not every day you meet someone who also knows what it's like to experience the lonely pain and fear and uncertainty of dismantling an entire worldview and leaving your community behind because you have to. In the world I came from, there's a major emphasis placed on telling others about one's relationship with God and how that relationship has transformed one's life. Oftentimes, there would be a special part of a church service set aside for this purpose, for people to come forward and do it publicly. We called it Offering Your Testimony. That's also the title of the book we're going to talk about today, which is such an honest and relatable account of what it was like to grow up in and leave an evangelical community that I was constantly connecting it to my own story. And I am grateful for the way it's made me feel seen and understood. So today I'm bringing you the first half of my conversation with the author, John Ward, and I hope it gives you some insight into the dominant thinking and motivations of evangelicals across the country and how those beliefs have shaped their relationship with politics. More than anything, though, I hope people on the inside and the outside of evangelical communities will be moved by how John's story illuminates a different way for faithfulness to inform and shape political engagement in the world. John Ward is the author of Testimony, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. It comes out on April 18th, but you can and absolutely should pre-order it now. I highly recommend it. Just click on the link in our show notes. John is also the chief national correspondent for Yahoo News. He has covered American politics and culture for two decades, including a stint as a White House correspondent. He's covered two presidential campaigns, and he's also the host of a podcast called The Long Game. And now, John Ward. John, welcome to the show. Ron, thank you so much. I don't often see someone who has, you know, one foot in politics and one foot in uh, the culture that I came from. It's very unusual. So, I like, I can't think of a better voice to, to bring on politicology to explain some of the things that we're seeing now in the Republican Party. So, before we get to all that, let's just start with why you decided to write this book, because it is deeply personal, not just informative about culture, but it's a personal story. So why write it and why now? 
I grew up in this church environment and I don't know exactly when, but at a certain point, whether it was high school or college or sometime shortly thereafter, I, I was becoming a writer. And at some point in that whole process, I just knew that <laughs> I, there was a lot of material in my background, uh, that was, uh, rich soil for, <laughs> for literary expo- exploration and not just as a writer, but as some somebody who wants to understand where he came from and who he is, like most of us. Um, you know, I knew that there was a lot to, to think through and work through there as well. Um, and, th- you know, for, for several years, I thought, actually, you know, I wrote a, an earlier book that uh, came out in 2019 about uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, primary battle against Ted Kennedy. Um, and to be totally transparent, I'll, a lot of my thinking about book publishing was I need, I want to write a book about the way I grew up. And this was 10 years ago, um, you know, predating everything that's happened since um, the rise of, of Donald Trump. Um, but I, I knew that I, I didn't know how to write that book in a way that would be relevant or marketable. Um, I didn't know what, I didn't know what the, the angle or the lens or the narrative would be. And so I, I really did think about book writing as I need to get a more mainstream book out there, and then I can try to pursue this other book that's really the one I want to write. And so again, that was before Trump. And then um, when the Trump movement happened in 2016, um, you know, there was there was a lot of reckoning going on already um, around race and systemic racism before that for a couple of years. And you kind of roll that into Trump and some of the reckoning that that caused within, I think, a lot of evangelicalism or within some of evangelicalism and, uh, and sort of the story began to take shape and, uh, or at least the need for telling it began to take shape. And then I sat down and figured out what the structure would be. That the best way to tell the story is through your own experience. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it certainly worked out that way. Um, it's kind of striking how I grew up in this church environment and one of the leaders was big in one wing of evangelicalism and two of the other leaders that ended up leaving in the 90s are now more relevant than ever, probably politically. They're very involved in uh, Christian Trumpism so um, and very different too in terms of their emphasis, their flavor of evangelicalism. So, um, I was on with, uh, Hugh Hewitt earlier today, who was kind of trying to argue that a lot of my experience was too narrow of a slice to be representative. And I was talking about this with a friend who's actually a scholar of religion who pointed out like my experience has been, um, charismatic. It's been reformed. It's been, um, uh, one or two other streams. So there's actually a lot of different variety in, uh, in my experience. Um, uh, and so I think it, it's actually, and the other point I made to Hugh was, um, you know, he knows a lot of, uh, Christian elites. Most people are not elites. They're living their lives, um, working a nine to five, raising the kids. Um, they don't have time to read all the books and talk to all the famous people that he talks to. And a big part of the emphasis of, I think my book is um, the the church culture has really failed to 
inculcate what I would call public character. I want to get into that culture, uh, but before we do, maybe you want to um, explain what you mean by a border stalker. You begin with that term in the in the book describing yourself. What's a border stalker? It was a term I came across in a book by Mako Fujimura, who's a painter and an author, also a person of uh, Christian faith. Um, I guess you have to qualify if you say that somebody's an artist and a person of faith that they are both. Uh, well, no, that they are um, both talented and recognized for being talented. Uh, yeah. uh, sometimes that those, you know, the faith component and the art component don't necessarily go together um, in terms of being a, a, a recognized as a quality of, as an artist of quality. Um, but he used that term in a book called Culture Care. I actually, you know, just asked Mike Pence, you know, what do you think of that term, culture care, what you, as opposed to culture war? Um, and I've really, really en enjoyed thinking about trying to embody that term, culture care. It's a beautiful, beautiful um, sentiment. And in that book, Mako talks about, you know, he brings up this old English word from Beowulf, which I think is Merkstapa, um, and, and he translates it as border stalker and to be a border stalker is to be from or in multiple, uh, tribes or worlds, um, and to walk in between them, not really being at home in any one of them. Um, but trying to be somebody who brings mutual understanding and dialogue and, uh, reducing, um, reductionism. Yeah. Okay. So we're both from evangelical communities. Um, what part of the country were you in? Uh, I grew up in Nevada, rural, okay. rural Nevada. Okay. So, uh, and the Foursquare denomination is was the denomination my my dad's church was in, um, but very fundamentalist, um, uh, often literal interpretations uh, of scripture. And I remember you noted that you didn't like the term literalism. Uh, I think because it precluded the possibility that you could believe that the Bible was inspired by God. But uh, but I forget the second half. Of, of the objection. I understand the objection and that fundamentalism is a more useful word for describing, I think, um, the kind of, uh, Bible based community that I, uh, grew up in. Yeah. And in terms of the hermeneutic, yeah. the way of interpreting scripture, I would, I would say the most fundamentalist approach would be, I think I've just kind of like made this term up, but I would just call it hyperliteralism. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hyperliteralism. Uh, so I definitely identify that, uh, with that. Um, and both of these evangelical communities are outside of the American South. And so I don't think everyone listening comes to this conversation with the understanding of the culture and the dynamics and the norms, um, the power structures that I think rang so familiar to me in reading your account. So can you maybe start by laying out what that culture looked like for you? Let's start there. Yeah, my dad and mom both were raised, uh, dad was Catholic, mom was Presbyterian, um, uh, or Episcopalian, I can never remember uh, which one, but there, she was a mainliner. He was a Catholic. And, um, and so they both became, you know, what they at the time called born again Christians in the seventies. Um, this was something called the Jesus movement, which, you know, people certainly of a certain age, mine and my age and younger probably have no idea what that is. If, uh, you know, if you're a boomer, you might remember this because Newsweek and Time both ran, you know, front cover, uh, articles about it. It was um, largely, you know, driven from the counterculture, 
uh, a lot of hippie influences, um, a lot of emphasis on music. Yes. Um, which Very is much. important to, to note. Um, and you know, it really created a lot of non-denominational startup type churches, house churches, house meetings. That's how our church started in somebody's basement. And then it became a Bible study meeting of young people that met at a, at a church in the evenings. Um, and then it, and then about, you know, God, it would have been seven years, six, seven, eight years later after all of that, they, they became an actual church, you know, formed a staff, started a budget. And, uh, my dad was one of the original pastors. I was the first, uh, infant dedicated in that church in uh, firstborn of my family and first, uh, baby dedicated in the church. Um, and that was 1977. So one of the things I have come to grips with and, and just sort of realized over the last, you know, two decades or so, or, pl- or more than that is just how much we really turned our back or my parents and their, their friends turned their back on tradition and history. Um, and they really wanted to have something authentic, um, and, and real, uh, you know, they wanted to make the transcendent imminent. Um, there's a big emphasis on, you know, authentic experience of the divine, both at church services and in daily life. So, you know, there, there was a lot to that time for them. It was absolutely life-changing for them. And, and so many of their friends gave them an, I would say an intensity of purpose in their lives and, uh, and a lot of, a lot of goodness, uh, especially at the beginning. Um, and then I think part of my story is, is sort of being there as a child, <laughs> living through some of the, the, the more weirder experience experiences, but really as I came of age, charting the ways in which, um, you know, the seeds that they planted of turning their back on tradition and history began to, um, you know, over time yield some pretty bad fruit. Um, and that's only, I think, continued. Um, but, you know, plenty of interesting stories yeah. of growing up uh, around people praying in tongues and all that sort of thing. Praying in tongues, I think it's a man, it must seem so foreign to so many people outside of right. that, even that wing of Christianity that, um, yeah, you talk about it and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember being at a conference. I think it was a pastor's conference for Foursquare and in the childcare portion of it and the, you know, it wasn't Sunday school, but the Sunday school teacher at the conference uh, with the kids was coaching them through how to um, sort of spit out nonsensical syllables in rapid succession. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that they, they convinced themselves. I remember this moment. Yeah. Right. But I'm sure that they convinced themselves that they were enabling their bodies to mm-hmm. be influenced by God. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so gosh, there's so many different threads I, I want to pull on here, but the Jesus movement is really I think um, what catalyzed the culture that we're talking about, I consider myself a child of that movement because I think my parents met in Bible study. Your parents met in church um, doing Bible study things. Um, And you write about how in the late 1970s, Republicans identified abortion as a way to consolidate religious conservatives, Um, that they, they used abortion to merge religious conservatives 
and cultural conservatives from the South, um, but that abortion and not white supremacy was the unifier. And when I got to that portion of the book, it struck me, it's so obviously true to my own experience because when Mike Madrid and I, for example, are discussing the, the all of the myriad problems with the Republican Party now, and especially what it became under Donald Trump, um, marked racism and white supremacy is always sort of used to characterize the entire Christian uh, base of the Republican Party. But that part, the abortion part, I was very familiar with. The white supremacy and, and racism part did not ring true to me at all because it wasn't part of my experience within that conservative culture, within the Christian culture. So um, can you talk about the abortion part and then uh, and then maybe dovetail into like how those converged into um, what we have now in the religious right? Well, I don't know how much you've covered this on the show, but on the racism part of this, um, it was Jimmy Carter who uh, who empowered the IRS to enforce um, nonprofit laws or, or laws that forbid nonprofits um, from discriminating on the basis of race. And that was something that a lot, I believe it was Jerry Falwell who said that that was what galvanized the religious right um, because they had formed so many private schools, sometimes called segregation academies, um, to get around Brown versus Board of Education, which had. Uh, you know, re which had integrated schools, public schools. So, um, you know, a lot of historians have written about that as an animating part of uh, the religious right and evangelical support for Republicans, um, Randall Balmer, Anthea Butler, and others. Um, for my dad, he voted for Carter in 76 and then voted for Reagan in now, I think now I'm forgetting. I always get this wrong. I think he voted for Carter in '80 and Reagan in '84, but I might have that wrong. Either way, he became a Reaganite, and around sometime in the early '80s, he got very involved in anti-abortion activism. Um, and he actually, you know, he he had studied C.S. Lewis in college, or he was working on a master's thesis as you know, after getting a bachelor's of English. And his thesis was on C.S. Lewis. So he was one of the actually more educated members of the leadership of our church, our startup little fledgling, fledgling congregation. Um, and um, I think in part because he wanted to apply his faith beyond church, uh, he got involved in, in anti-abortion activism. Um, and so he started leading protests um, and uh, – and then, you know, around the mid-80s was when there were the first rash of real violent, um, you know, domestic terrorism attacks on ab abortion doctors, abortion providers. Um, and I think that was the time that uh, that our church kind of got wet feet about doing more of that. But abortion really at that time, sometime around, you know, the election of Reagan um, became the main issue for my parents politically. And I was raised in an environment in which we thought of politics as kind of um, not holy enough, um, yeah. you know, sort of a, a dirty thing. Yeah. Um, and so we really didn't think about politics or talk about politics. The only political input in our thinking was abortion. 
And it made it made politics very Manichaean. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, anybody who was for abortion was not just wrong; they were evil. Um, therefore, all Democrats were pretty much evil. Yeah. You know, and uh, and God, you know, couldn't couldn't comprehend that a person of faith could be a Democrat. Um, and so that was kind of how I grew up on on race. I I, I say that you know, it was more of a sin of omission, right, than of commission. We we were not aware of, uh, ongoing, you know, uh, uh, racial inequality or injustice. We certainly weren't tracking. Um, I don't think a lot of people were tracking it, but we certainly were not tracking, you know, the rise of mass incarceration, right. Which fell heavily on the black community. Um, you know, we thought of the AIDS crisis as, uh, I don't know if we ever said it was judgment from God, but I think that's fair to say a lot Except of us kind that of that judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same in my community. I don't think, yeah. I don't think I ever heard those words, you know, yeah. from my dad or from the right. church teachers, but certainly it was, um, that, re- was, the, received, that was the vibe. That was the vibe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was the vibe. It was not challenged. We'll put it that way. There's a lot of people I think who believe that race was the unifier, um, and you mentioned that in the book. And so I wonder how making that distinction can help people who don't have the same background that we do really understand um, where evangelicals, especially from outside the Southern tradition, are coming from. So I just wanted to mm-hmm. lay that out and offer that as a, like, there are there were two sort of camps here that really didn't know each other. Um, and, uh, and they were defined by um, different things. I want to go back to... Well, if I can just say, yep. I mean, I graduated high school in Please. 95 and I I think that the nineties maybe in, in particular were just like a really unique moment. Yes. You had Rodney King and the LA riots. That was, that was pretty bad. I mean, but if you were growing up at that time, as I was outside the deep South, um, or maybe like Boston, um, you know, like I, I had an idea of race that was very, um, uh, pluralistic, I guess. I don't know what the right term is, but I, rem- I specifically remember around high school just thinking, oh, in like 30, 40, 50 years, we will have become such a melting pot that like the majority uh, skin color or ethnicity will be non-white. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like that was my thought process. Right. Um, so there, there wasn't, there certainly was not, I never heard my parents say anything negative about anybody based on their, their skin color. It was just really a, a total sort of deficit of awareness right. of things. I, you know, I did, had no idea what it was like or what it meant to be Jewish or uh, Eastern European. I had no sense of like my own, um, you know, personal heritage. It just because we really were like cut off, like I said, from history, and so there was no sense of any of that. Cut off from history and cut off from a lot of things. You get at the insularity yeah. of these of these communities um, in the book. That's one form it takes. Um, uh, you mentioned Jerry Falwell and the and the you know the, the the nonprofits and the schools and stuff that have been set up outside of the world. I put the world in air quotes, right? Because that phrase to me means something from my child. When we say, uh, "Oh, someone is in the world," or they are. Um, they're, you know, they're, that means they're not with us. Um, it was a very either or, uh, way to talk about, uh, a person. So I want to talk about insulation a little bit. You write about how you were taught that, uh, like I said, anyone not in the church was in the world. Can you explain how that isolationism played out or if you want to use a different word by all means, how did that play out in your community? 
we, yeah. I mean, our social lives, some people will go to church on Sundays. Yeah. Um, we were pretty much expected to make our entire lives revolve around relationships, relationships with people in our congregation. And we did have a very, uh, naive, arrogant view about, um, our grasp of reality and, tr- and truth, hmm. capital T, I would say. Um, there was always a pretty clear sense that if people left our ch- congregation or, you know, we, we eventually had other congregations in other parts of the country cause we did grow. Um, if anybody left our family of churches, they were kind of off the true path, which, you know, that's beginning to go down the path of cultism. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so our relationships were all in this world. Um, a lot of our time was obviously because of that spent there. We had meetings on Sundays, we had small group meetings, we had activities. And again, we were not politically active or aware. And, uh, our our view of what you just called the world was really that, you know, it was, uh, a pretty terrible place, always getting worse because that was sort of our theology. And our job was to, um, remain as unstained mm-hmm. by the unwashed masses outside the congregation. And, and, and we didn't focus a lot on the end of the world, but that was sort of the impl- implication there was, you know, our job was to hold on until the return of Christ. And, um, you know, any engagement we had with people outside the church was to get them to convert. Yeah. That was pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gosh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to struggle to stay on, on, on the plan here because there's so many things I want to ask you, but, um, end times, even if it weren't, and when I say end times, what I am referring to is the teaching of some fundamentalist churches about what will happen, uh, at the end of the world. And as you just mentioned, Christ literally comes back and there's a author teacher, um, who means a lot to me, uh, and, and his work was very influential in my personal life. His name is Rob Bell. Hmm. And in, um, one book or another of his, he wrote a very succinct sentence, which is our eschatology determines our ethics. And eschatology is the study of last things. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're not familiar with the terminology, um, and so I wonder if you can explain a little bit more Mm -hmm. about, what what it what your community believed about the end of the world or yeah. the end things and how that theology shaped the way you live on a day-to-day basis one other before i do that one yeah. other uh just small note we also in terms of insularity our church started a school and you know it was a way for the 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 church to kind of tighten the clamps even more on yeah. uh thought behavior etc but yeah i mean by the time we got to, by the time I was 20 and I actually entered my age of my, my most intense religiosity, um, I know that our church was, um, post-millennial. Mm. I always get them mixed up. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is not. No most, one will know what that word, what right. that term means, but by the way. basically <laughs> it doesn't believe in the rapture, right. which is the whole, okay. you know, um, left behind thing. Right. Um, but. In, until for most of the eighties, I would say in the seventies, like the overwhelming, uh, evangelical 
zeitgeist was pre-mill, pre-millennial dispensationalist, which again, nobody will know what that means. But what it basically means is if you've ever heard of the left behind books or movies, that is basically it. It's this idea that people who are Christians will be um, raptured or disappeared by God into heaven and everybody else will be left behind for a thousand year tribulation. This is all drawn from the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. And I would say not as a as an expert on this, but my sense of looking at the um, consensus of experts is that most serious Bible scholars um, believe that you know this reading of Revelation is hyper literalist and uh, and and not actually what the book is intended to convey. Um, but that's where it comes from. And so um, so that's what drives this idea that, well, it's all getting, it's all headed towards this cataclysm and it's all getting worse all the time. And our job is to hang on for dear life and separate from it. And so it really does create a nihilism um, and a, uh, um, and, 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 and a sense of like, I don't really care what happens. In fact, it's good if things get worse. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> they have to if Jesus right. is going to come back. Right. And so that's what I think Bell's getting at. Um, you know, there, there is a long history of the opposite, the, the, the post-millennial view, which I think um, was more dominant in the early 20th century and in the, and in the 19th century, uh, which did lead to more social activism, um, again, to, to Bell's point. Um, and at a certain point in the 20th century, um, there's a book called When, when Time Shall Be No More by a, a scholar named Paul Boyer, which I've read parts of that I think documents a lot of this. Um, at a certain point in, in the 20th century, um, the predominant view uh, of, of a lot of evangelicals, certainly fundamentalists, switched to the, to the left behind yeah. pre-mail point of view. And um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. you know, and so now we have like a mishmash, right. um, but, but I think popular culture really shapes a lot of it. That's why left behind books and movies are really important. Yeah. The left behind books, uh, I think if people are familiar with any of this, they will be familiar with the left behind books. You also mentioned Frank Peretti's, uh, this present darkness I'm, was very familiar with Frank Peretti because he also wrote a series of, uh, young adult novels, um, uh, instilled with the same, um, the same kind of eschatology, but then even more scary than that, um, I was just telling a, a filmmaker friend of mine um, about having watched A Thief in the Night and A Distant Thunder over and over again when I was a child uh, at church groups. Um, they would have screening nights uh, for these movies, and if you're if you want to get a really good flavor for what growing up in um, in this kind of belief system. Uh, is like, uh, these two movies are on YouTube and you can watch them for free. The first one is called A Thief in the Night. And the second, which is the sequel, is called A Distant Thunder. At the end of that movie, A Distant Thunder, this the closing scene is, uh, now, the, to, to, the cliff notes of the stories, which are consistent across the Left Behind series and these movies are, uh, the, the world gets real bad. A one world government springs up to control everything and everyone after the rapture, after the rapture, right. all the, all the good people are taken away physically, um, or evaporated. <laughs> and, um, and then you have the one world government to control all the chaos and everybody has to get an identifier and, and, and 
the identifier is dun 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 the mark of the beast, and it takes the form of a you know a barcode or something on your forehead or your uh, wrist. And these movies bring that to life in such a way that by the end of the sequel, um, you're closing with this one world government executing people by guillotine who will not renounce their faith in Jesus. And I can't tell you the number of nightmares <laughs> that, that that gave me and the kind of fear that it instilled, but not just fear, the the sense that um, this being in the world but not of it, making the people who are in the in-group the special ones uh, and everybody outside in the world the enemy, ultimately, or fear that they would become the enemy, I think is really, really deeply rooted in what we're seeing now today in the in the in the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Um, I don't want to draw that connection just yet. We'll we'll get there later. But I wanted to know, if, if, like, do you have any other, you know, thoughts on how this understanding of the end times um, shapes the way evangelicals are acting now? Um, and and how it builds this sort of mystical spiritual warrior ideology that you talk about in the thing because in the book because becoming a spiritual warrior it seems to me has now been co-opted with becoming a political warrior of the tribe that you're of the of the tribe that you're in there's a lot to pull on in that yeah. i mean i think the whole thing about renouncing your faith is yeah. a really interesting part of it because there is a lot of evangelical sort of culture that um, places so much emphasis on taking a public stand for an identity or a set of beliefs. Yeah. And that goes back, you know, you saw that in something that I think happened when I was in high school, which was called see you at the pole. Yes. Which is I where, remember. uh, young, you know, high school, uh, evangelicals would all, uh, pick a, a day, I think in the fall and gather at the, the flagpole to pray. And it was billed as a big thing to do, um, as a way to sacrifice for God. Um, and over time I've just come to the conclusion that, you know, what's really costly is to live a life that day in, day out is, um, materially sacrificing <laughs> for others, kind of embedding your choices in a way of living that is, uh, that is moving towards vulnerability and service and uh, lifting up those who are, you know, downtrodden or marginalized. Um, but combined with this idea that we are always persecuted, there's this um, mentality that what really matters and how you can really sacrifice for God is to, you know, make a stand and then hopefully be, be, criticized um, because then you know you're on the right track. So it kind of sets up this dynamic where people are um, incentivized to do things that are sort of provocative or even incendiary. And then, you know, the, the, the response of, you know, criticism or even outrage is a vindication or a validation of the idea that you're, you're doing the right thing. Um, so, uh, I, I, I just, I think that's not maybe the most helpful <laughs> yeah. way to think about it. I mean, you do have, you do have a, a sort of purity politics, purity culture on in, I think in any group where, um, 
there's a, there's a way in which people can think, well, if I if I compromise with the other side, I'm not yeah. uh, I'm not really standing for my beliefs right. as much as I should. But this is a little different than that, I think. I, I want to switch to uh, ecstatic experience um, as indicative of those beliefs. Uh, um, you write that when you were in a phase of fanaticism, <laughs> you equated your emotional highs with obedience to God, um, that your spiritual ecstasy was a sign of your devotion to God. Can you explain to people um, what that was like and the challenge of sustaining that um, while also living in the world and going to school and doing normal day-to-day things, what is it that what is it that is expected of a you know air quotes good Christian in that context? It'd be interesting to do a historical study on this because it's not as if ecstatic experience or emotionalism is unique in over the last fifty years. Um, evangelicalism has often that's been a hallmark of it. Um, going back to, you know, uh, pre-revolution, but, um, but it was formative for my parents' generation, this sort of ecstatic, emotional, um, intense experience. And so it really set the, the paradigm for how they, um, designed their religious life. And so every Sunday we, we, we attempt, we basically for decades attempted to recreate their highest, uh, moments from, you know, their, their formative years, their, their early twenties. And it became part of our catechesis, you know, which is basically a religious instruction through, through liturgy and, and, and ritual. Um, and the catechesis was, you know, if you're, if you're not feeling strong emotions for God, then you're not, um, loving God, you're not pleasing God. And, um, and so that's what we tried to do on a regular basis on, th- on Sunday services at youth group meetings and on retreats. And, um, and you know, as I tell in this, my own story, I, I, uh, I had moments of that growing up, but I, you know, going back to the thief in the night movie, I saw that in high school and honestly, I just sort of like shrugged it off. Really? I just sort of thought, nah, it's kind of silly. Wow. But even for, for somebody like me who shrugged it off and kind of laughed at it. I guess I am six years younger than you or so. So yep. I was a little bit more impressionable. I was like a high school <laughs> sophomore yeah. or junior. Right. Yeah. And so I was much more interested in sports and girls. Even so it embedded itself in my imagination. Um, and, um, and so um, going back to the, to the ecstatic experience, uh, I had those moments occasionally growing up, but I was, again, more interested in other things. But then when I became, you know, really intense at age 20, that became like my whole purpose in life was to have that experience. And, um, I went hard after it really hard. And, um, and that's part of why I burned out, but I, it was only in writing this book actually, that I realized that if, if that is one of your goals, and we still know people, my wife and I, who um, this is a big part of their religious culture, you know, this sort of um, highly emotional religion where, where emotion and experience are kind of some of the biggest validators of their faith. 
Um, and if that is the case, then it makes it very hard to, uh, to live not just in, in the real world or in real life, but to live out what I think the Christian faith calls one to do, which is to move into, um, the nooks and crannies of life, uh, as an ambassador for love, peace, healing, um, reconciliation, um, you know, those nooks and crannies of life are not often pleasant places and, um, they're not easy. And, and to, to live there, not as if you, you know, you want to be a seeking out trouble or seeking out suffering, but to, to embrace that way of living and to engage in everyday life and to, to be of use, I think in the world, um, it, you, you can't do it and sustain that sort of emotionalism. And so, um, I had to make a choice and I, and I chose, um, to go out from that subculture. That's yeah. ultimately a big part of what drove me out of it. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you even reveal some of the entries from your journals writing at this time and how sort of fraught that was for you. It's, it's, it's a very vulnerable book, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and really, really beautifully done. So I, Thank you. I, I appreciate that you offered us that, um, that insight into those moments. I wish I had kept a journal at that point because I, that I could return to and, and remember what I was thinking through. So, um, okay. So, um, you mentioned you were interested in other things. I want to talk about sexuality for a minute. Mm. Um, because I think there's this perception, uh, that it's only really hard for like LGBT people growing up in uh, Christian or evangelical environments like I did um, to handle the way sexuality is viewed uh, and discussed or not discussed <laughs> um, in, in their faith communities. Um, and I think you gave some really good insight into how it's far more wide reaching. Um, and this was something I, frankly, I hadn't even really considered because um, you know, uh, when I was growing up by, you know, I knew I was gay, but I definitely didn't uh, want to talk about it. Um, I got a, um, I never got the birds and the bees talk. Uh, instead, I got um, Preparing for Adolescence by James Dobson, left on my pillow to read alone. Um, and uh, and reading your account of how sort of the, how the role sexuality played in confessional form um, in, in your, I remember the Starbucks scene, um, was just so jarring to me because it wasn't part of my experience. Cause I was so, uh, sexuality was even more taboo than that. Um, as a matter of fact, the conversations that you were having with your peers and elders there, um, would be quite bold in, in the community I came from. Um, so I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about, uh, about what that was like. So you're, you're, church culture was very closeted towards all sex talk of sexuality. Yeah. 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 Like don't have sex. Don't even ask me what it is until you're married. Wow. Yeah. 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 Um, trying to remember where it started. Um, nonetheless, I mean, where it ended up was, uh, we had a insane, uh, practice of getting (laughs) together, uh, young men in their early twenties to talk about how often they looked at porn and masturbated. And, uh, we would do this in Starbucks, uh, 
coffee shops at times, you know, other times in people's houses or whatever. Um, it was part of a, of an attempt to be as holy as possible, um, essentially. Um, and, um, was driven by the theology. You know, we were getting in the late nineties into really kind of hardcore Calvinism, which is, Oh yeah. Um, which is, yeah, which is really the, the emphasis is on how evil every person is in their core, like fundamentally. And Um, on predetermination. Yep. Yeah. And only people, you know, yeah, at a certain point, I don't know if the church held on to this, but early on they were subscribing to the idea that only people who God chose to be, saved were we're going to be saved like you, they had no agency you ha- yeah have no agency yeah. yeah 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 which is just a pretty Whew. bleak <laughs> it's dystopian pretty yeah. Bleak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh and so we were just always on this search to root out any impurity and i'm already <laughs> an introvert <laughs> and self-analytical it was a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I just really turned in on myself in ways that were, um, so, so painful. Um, it was definitely the unhappiest part of my life that whole period. Yeah. You write about how, when you were a high school teacher, you wrote that, um, the school was teaching its students, not how to think, but what to think. This is on that in anti-intellectual, mm. um, vein. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about anti-intellectualism mm-hmm. and how it reinforced the existing structures and the insularity. All of all of these features really combine to form like an impenetrable uh, world, mm-hmm. um, not just worldview, but but world. And I, 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 I'm glad you say that. That's really what I'm trying to convey. Yeah, here. and and you do. Yeah, so yeah. and there's so many components to yeah, it, which yeah. is why like it's hard to choose what to talk about next right. because. There, there are, there are, there are a set of features that that all work together to really um, isolate and prevent any intrusion to the to, to this world and to the thinking inside this world. Right. Um, I was also homeschooled up until fourth grade. Yeah. Uh, and then again in junior high because yeah. ooh, brought years better pull them out of uh, <laughs> yeah. school and no, yeah. Uh, and so um, this the, the anti intellectualism. Um, just was one of those things that reinforced the entire, um, the cultural bubble. And I also wonder what parallels you would draw from the anti-intellectualism, uh, of, of the culture to, um, the anti-intellectualism we're seeing in the political, uh, right Mm -hmm. now. How do you, do you tie those two things together? Um, or, Maybe you start with the first one and, and then well, and draw any political conclusions. Let's try and define terms. Yeah. I mean, um, because this is something I feel like I struggled a little bit with uh, or have struggled a little bit with um, a couple of times. It's, it's something that I've seen provoke some, uh, some complaints or criticism from people in this world already. Mm. Um, and generally they point to authors, writers, leaders who are well-read, um, who clearly are, you know, generally pretty bright, Mm -hmm. um, as, as examples of, you know, evangelicals are not anti-intellectual because there are these people who are intellectuals. One person who's been mentioned to me just today on the, on the Hewitt show was, uh, Al Mohler, who's, um, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and kind of a prolific uh, content creator with his radio show and 
and, and writing. He now, I think, runs the World Magazine editorial page as well. Definitely a culture warrior. Yeah. Um, you know, for a long time, I did think of him as an intellectual. But at some point, I began to see him as more of a reactionary, dressed up as an intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I thought about this Hewitt conversation we had earlier, um, you know, I was thinking, like, how do you define anti-intellectual? And I think, and I think we should, we like, should, yeah, we should like struggle with that a yeah. little bit. I think, you know, one of the markers for me is how willing are you to say, I don't know, and I could be wrong yeah. about just about anything. And to me, that's that's where somebody like Moeller really, um, you can kind of just distinguish them yeah. because the the whole idea that they could be wrong about a very large number of topics i mean it's something he i think would would have a hard time yeah you know offering really up voluntarily really certainly. Yeah. yeah he might say it about a couple things like as yeah. in an offhand manner manner but i think an intellectual approach to things uh recognizes that there's a lot we don't know and is willing to hold one's conclusions with a pretty open hand. Yeah. To me, that's yeah an intellectual approach. That's, not that you've read that's all an the honest approach. Yeah, yeah. Not that you've read all the books, you know. Yeah. Or know all the references. Yeah. It's more a, a methodology. Yeah. And an attitude. Yeah. Am I interested in seeking truth? Yes. And do and, I have and a, reality? And reality, which is yeah. hard. Yeah. Which we we should be very fair about that. Truth seeking is not an easy endeavor, especially now. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.